Well, whilst we're all running around figuring out how to make insurance better, it can help sometimes to step back and ask the existentialist question, should insurance even exist? Well, of course it should. People and businesses are always going to need some way of recovering from losses. But a theme that is beginning to emerge is whether there are times that the insurance element is not required as a standalone function and the claims or recoveries should simply be part of what is included in the original purchase price. This is Matthew Grant, partner at Instec London, and by the time this podcast has gone live, Robin Merson should have handed in his homework and we will have released our next Instec London report, this time looking at the themes and companies related to embedded insurance. So in this episode, Robin is going to be talking to Simon Torrance, who collaborated with us on the report, and they are discussing why embedded insurance is becoming so popular. Look out for examples from around the world where insurers are collaborating with companies selling products and in some cases opening up major new markets and making the experience painless for the customer. As always, the write-up for this episode is available on our website, www.instec.london. And if you want to learn more about what we are finding out about in embedded insurance, you're also going to find the report there too. Now, if you think you'd benefit from working closer with us and want to learn more about our members network, then please do get in contact with me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn, or any of us, hello at instec.london. So uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Instech London podcast. Uh, This week, I'm joined by um, Simon Torrance, who it's fair to say is a man of many talents. He's an author, a presenter, venture builder, advisor, currently an executive member of the World Economic Forum Working Group on Accelerating Digital Transformation. Um, He's a genuine expert in platform economy and digital ecosystem management. And I call you Mr. Embedded Finance. We first came across you when uh, you wrote your article in in December on embedded uh, insurance, a three trillion market opportunity. Uh, And as as, um, embedded insurance became such a hot topic in the course of 2021, uh, much as a result of your activities, I have to say, we've collaborated on the writing of a report, an Insect London report on embedded finance, uh, which is called to embed or not to embed, and thank you for your help on that. And what we're here to do today is Chuck Simon and I talk about embedded insurance uh, and what's going on and, and to kind of uh, pick Simon's brain to, um, to, to to highlight some of the things in the report. So, look, Simon, thank you for, for, for joining. Uh, I hope you feel you were done justice by that little introduction. Indeed. Um, Absolutely. Pleased to be here. Thanks, Robin. Uh, so, so... Uh, look, we can't go very far without discussing what embedded insurance is. What, what would be your definition? Yeah, it's part of a broader uh, movement towards embedded finance. And essentially what that means is technology has become so sophisticated now that it's possible to abstract many more aspects of financial services into technology, to take those capabilities, put them into software, and allow other people to embed those capabilities into their own services. So I'll give you a very simple example from the the, the world of payments, and then we'll look at what that means for insurance. But when I use an Uber car, I don't have to get my credit card out at the end to pay for it. That's all been worked out in the background, and Uber 
has embedded payments into their experience for me and made it very easy and part of the reason why you use Uber. Now, interestingly, on the other side, they've also embedded insurance into the experience of the driver. So as part of their contract with uh, Uber, they have insurance built in. And the idea, and it's happening you know, very fast now in payments and banking and coming to insurance increasingly, is that technology allows any organization to become a seller or distributor or creator of insurance propositions um, and do it much quicker, easier, less costly than it was possible in the past. And so that is the notion of embedded insurance. It's it's something that has happened in the past in terms of other people have sold insurance for, for a long time, but it's always been very difficult. Only the biggest organizations could do that. They have to invest a lot of time and money and take a long time negotiating contracts with insurers. Now, any company can, big or small, anywhere in the world, and they can define propositions, which because they know the end customer better, they, in principle, those propositions can be cheaper, more personalized, more relevant, uh, and, and easier to consume than if uh, an individual or a business goes to an insurance company, which is a further steps away from what they're actually doing in their daily lives. So that's the notion, the general notion of it. It's other people embedding insurance into their propositions enabled by technology to, to do so. So, so old timers will then say, um, but that's what affinity schemes were. You know, we, we, we used to have these affinity schemes and we worked with the architects and we provided the architects with a, uh, what, what makes them different from affinity schemes? Well, it's the same sort of thing, but it's just happening much quicker and at much bigger scale. So that it could be, I mean, at one level, it could be the um, a small bicycle retailer who the insurance companies just would ignore via their affinity schemes. The small bicycle retailer can add on uh, warranties or insurance cover at the point of sale when people buy a, an expensive bike from them. And they, they, make, they can make money from doing so, or they can make their customers more loyal. And for many small retailers, the margin on the insurance is, is very significant. It's actually a higher margin than selling the bike in the first place. So you've got, if you like, it's got this long tail at one level of businesses that could never do that. The affinity schemes would never just not set up to, to support them. Um, but on the other level, it means that organizations, big organizations, like uh, like I mentioned Uber before, or the big online marketplaces like Amazon, can now, they can be in, in control of the type of insurance that they want to offer their customers. And technology allows them to combine their data that they have with of their customers with the, the data that the insurance company needs for underwriting to create much more, as I said, personalized, cheaper you know, um, types of insurance. So we've had, as you say, we've had affinity schemes and distribution through big brands in the past. But now, even with the big brands, they can do much smarter, cleverer, more sophisticated insurance propositions 
uh, much quicker than, you know, it would take, used to take years to negotiate a deal with a big insurer. And then it took years to get the internal IT department to set up, put it on the website and so on. And now all of that is collapsed, you know, by tenfold. And so, you know, the power now is to do is to enable um, big brands to do clever things with this. And I've got some, a few nice examples I'll tell you about in a, in a second to bring it to life. The way I look at it, it, it is actually the insurance industry has always relied on, on third parties for distribution. It's been yeah. you know, crucial to the way insurance is sold. What we're talking about here now is a technology and data-enabled way of doing that. And, and I think it involves really getting your head around new channels. I mean, uh, you know, to some extent, we've worked with retailers in, in the past, but you're embracing them now as friends with big customer bases and 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 trusted brands and the ability to to sell and uh, you know and and bringing them into the way the way we distribute. The other traditionalist cry I hear, which which kind of sort of irritates me slightly, is uh, we've done all this before, Robin. This is sort of PPI all over again, and 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 it leads to uh, mis-selling. Uh, and 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 I think what irks me is mis-selling and PPI was about selling something that people didn't want exactly. in a way that they kind of was slightly unseemly uh, and embedded is actually completely the opposite which is about ensuring that uh, there's a match between the product and the requirement uh, uh, using the data to ensure that you know almost the sort of right product uh, at the right time sold in a way that makes it easy to buy and and there's no part of this that does away with the regulatory requirements. I mean, it's not like embedded suddenly doesn't have regulatory requirements, you know, in exactly the same way as you always would. Something the, the, the technology still has to deal with the KYC issues. It still has to ensure that there's a sort of suitability match. It, still, it has to make sure that the proper pricing and documentation issued and so on. It's just that that's happening to your Uber point, sort of behind the scenes. It's sort of, it's sort of facilitated and seamless rather than the grind that uh, we put our customers through right now. Uh, Matthew here. I'm just going to jump in on a couple of things that Robin mentioned. PPI, well, that's personal protection insurance, of which about 64 million policies were missold in the UK between 1990 and 2010. That ended up costing the UK banks about £33 billion at the last count. And KYC, well, that stands for Know Your Customer, part of the requirements that banks have to undergo to prevent money laundering. Now, over to Simon. Here's one of my favourite examples from around the world. It's very, very illustrative of where this is going on multiple layers. And I find this very useful to bring it to life to people. Let's go to China. And Ant Group owns Alipay, which is the biggest, or one of the biggest super apps in the world. And there are millions of people who use Alipay every day to buy things. And then they can access all kinds of other services from that, from that um, app. Now. In rural China, there are hundreds of millions of people who have no insurance protection whatsoever. Poor people in rural China, insurance has never been able to reach them. And it's a very precarious life for, for people. They, they have very limited health care. They have very limited you know, accident insurance and everything else. So what Alipay does, because it has this daily and constant interaction with those with that audience, it is able to act as an intermediary between the, the unmet needs 
of that huge audience, completely unprotected, and the supply, the supply of insurance to, to meet those needs. And so it, it is a digital platform, of course. Uh, it is in daily contact with those customers. And what it has done is, is said, we will educate those 100 million rural Chinese people about insurance, because we're, we're in a position to do that much better than insurance companies who they've never even heard of before. Um, and we will then co-create with a network of 40 insurers the right type of solutions that could be affordable, obviously, to, the, to these people, are understandable, which is important, and then you know, relevant to their personal situation. So it acts as, a, acts as if you like, a, a marketplace between the needs of those consumers and the supply base, which is traditional insurance companies. Now, collectively, those insurance companies have created with Alipay 2,000 know, micro-insurance propositions, modules, offers. And then Alipay engages the, the end user in those. And now, as a result of that, they've now signed up something like 104 million new customers um, that are now covered for things like cancer, where they pay a tiny amount but get basic cancer coverage or basic accident coverage and other types of coverage. And you know, if you have that sort of volume, you know, it's a it's a good business to be in. And they take a very nice cut as the intermediary for doing that. And they would be what you would in the past call an affinity partner. Mm. <laughs> but they are bringing into the fold, into the into protection, lots of people who are off the grid that the traditional companies, you know, don't know how to reach. Uh, don't know how to engage with and, and you know, uh, I can't um, really serve. Yeah. So that's a sort of what that and what that example is saying is a couple of things. There is there are these new distribution, very powerful distribution partners. And we'll come on and talk about that in a second and explore it in more detail, which are the digital platforms where people are spending more of their lives in. They are acting as an intermediary between the, the supply base and they are the new power brokers because they can say to 40 insurers, this is what we need from you. Whoever comes up with the right solution, you know, gets to make the sale. And that is a very new, if you like, control point in the market. In some respects, the insurers, are, they're sort of caught with two, two sides of their brains working here. One level, the, 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 the partnership organization says, great, it's a new channel for us. We could never reach this audience. On the other side, you've got the strategy people going, yeah, well, that might be good in the short term, but aren't we just being relegated to, you know, to a commodity supplier competing against many others? And that's part of the, the strategic you know, dilemma question for the incumbents at the moment. But it's illustrative of the fact that there are these new intermediaries coming in and enabling new type of personalized and relevant insurance, cost-effective insurance. Yes, we'll come to that because it's both an opportunity and, and, a, and a threat. And I think in the, in the report, what we try to do is sort of draw uh, out those points, uh, um, you know, in more detail. We also spent a bit of time with your help, thinking, you know, talking about China, because I don't think it's, it's, it's possible to talk about Embedded uh, without alluding to how successful it's been there. The other observation I make is, in, is, that, is that I think that when I went into this, I rather assumed that it was only relevant to smaller 
simpler product, uh, you know, that sold at, at great scale and that, that only if you could sort of bundle it up into a bite-sized chunk could you treat it in the embedded way. But, but we, we came across some really interesting, um, slightly more complex embedded insurance products, which, 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 uh, you know, which are featured. I, I like um, one that Azure do um, in the US fix and flip market. You know, their uh, properties are being bought by um, uh, often sort of retail developers to redevelop. Uh, and, and, and at the point at which they apply for a, a bridging loan, they also get a quote for builder's risk. You know, just an example of this right thing, right time. You know, here's your loan. Do you also want builder's insurance with it? Because the, if you do, the price is this. Absolutely no faff associated with it. And I saw a really nice one in called Gaia, Gaia Family in the IVF market. So, so they're a company that advises you on IVF runs um, some really interesting analytics around your chances of success and provides sort of advisory services. Um, and with the data that you provide as a result of that, they provide an interesting ins- insurance scheme against to reimburse you for the, for the IVF failure. So if you're successful with your IVF, then you've got what you came in for and you're lucky. But if you're not successful, then you get your money, and and you can you basically buy into this as part of your IVF or not as your onboarding, um, you know, for your for your treatment and advisory services. So so I I came across more complex and more more wider variety of products than I thought I was going to come across when we set out doing the investigations behind this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just thinking ahead because you've got some great examples in the report from all over the world. I'll come back to one in a second, but you just triggered a thought there that. You know, there's a lot of people, there's, there's a need for lifelong learning now. We, we're changing jobs much more quickly. And you've got now embedded lending for online courses. So if you want to take this course, you know, the, the, there's, here's some money to, to fund that course. But I'm just thinking, based on your example, you could embed insurance there. If you don't get employed within two years, you know, yes. we'll... So, so you're quite right. The more once you you start thinking about the possibilities, then they, it, it gets very interesting indeed. I'll, I'll show you share with you another really interesting example. I think we capture it in the report, or at least we allude to it, um, which is in the small business space. And you, I think you talk about we uh, there's a company that ha- is enabling the the software platforms that support small businesses. So this is things like QuickBooks and Zero and and others. And they have, a bit like uh, Alipay in China for consumers, they have constant connection with the SMEs who are using their their software. They can tell exactly if the company is doing well, badly, if they're taking on more people and so on. And what they've started to do, they they offered credit in the past. They're now offering insurance. So they can tell if you're if you've just hired another ten people, maybe you you need some some workers' compensation insurance uh, to support that, or you might need some extra liability insurance because you've just taken on, you've just increased, or you bought, or you've leased some more sites for your business as well. And what they're managing to do, and this is interesting, is even before point of awareness. You know, before that anybody is, is even aware that they need insurance, at point of need, they're able to trigger uh, an alert or an offer or a inter, you know, intervention to say, you've just taken on 50 people. 
I think you need some insurance. And by the way, here's, here's several different options for you that we have carefully curated through our um, through our insurance platform, working with back to Alipay, you know, twenty of the leading insurers, um, and it's tailored to you because you because we've it, it's uh, aligned to the data we understand about your business, and you can also pay for it in you know, over time. You don't have to pay a big premium up front. So suddenly, there you're you're moving from if you like point of sale add-ons, like I mentioned with the bike insurance. So someone's already made that bought the bike. Do you want insurance with that? You're going even before point of awareness. You know, I've, I've, you know, I'm expanding my company. Where do I go to get the? You, you're going. You're creating a, a trigger has been created at point of need before point of awareness and point of sale, and that's really interesting when you can get into that stage of the uh, of the life cycle of a of a sale. I think you and I could go on for a while about how it's been used and the size of the opportunity, but, but you, you, you come up with some figures. I mean, how, how big an opportunity is this? I mean, how seriously should the insurance industry be taking this? Yeah, well, they should take it very seriously because I, I did some market forecasting analysis. I've tested this with lots and lots of people in the industry and everybody feels it's in the ballpark, you know, whether it's, you know, it could take a little bit longer, could take a bit, bit quicker as well. But I, I, I came up with a figure that said that in PNC alone, we're going to get to about 20 to 24% of distribution, which will be through this mechanism. And this mechanism, what I mean is super automated embedded insurance, not just you know, a, an affinity deal um, developed in an analog way. So it's today it's it's very it's tiny, you know, by that definition I, I've I've given it there. But in 10 years' time, things are moving so fast with technology that let's say 20, 24%. Uh, you'd say that China's, you know, probably at about 10% already through those examples I gave before. And that then gets to a very large number. So 24% of total PNC uh, is quite significant. I think it's about 700 billion. Um, and then where I came down, came to the, the market opportunity is for those organizations who then enable it. And these are software businesses that are enabling this to happen. and they tend to get a multiple of at least five times the, the the revenue or the GWP. And so you get to a figure of about three, just over $3 trillion, which is saying that's new businesses that are enabling embedded insurance just in PNC. Uh, a couple more bits of insurance speaking there. PNC is, of course, property and casualty insurance. It's basically everything outside of life insurance. And GWP, well, that is gross written premium. Now, back to Simon. Now, those businesses could be new ventures from incumbents. They could be existing insure techs that are already doing this. There's a, there's a small number today. They could be other companies that don't even exist today. And the analogy I like to give is, is if you look at payments or banking, you know, we've seen this trend happening there. I know insurance is more complex and it's more regulated, but we're seeing businesses coming along like Stripe, which enables payments for uh, embedded payments and lending now, which is worth 95 billion. You know, that's that's more than Goldman Sachs, and it's only about 10 years old. You've seen Klarna uh, coming up, which is a lending, a form of embedded lending. Uh, which is worth double Deutsche Bank, uh, and it's about 12 years old, I think maybe a bit older than that. So th this is why this is quite, quite exciting. 
Um, and I think we all companies need to work out what where to play and how to win in this emerging market. So that raises a, you know, another line of inquiry for, for us, which is we're starting to see quite regular unicorn valuations for insure tech businesses. And, and my observation would be uh, that the ones that are getting those type of valuations are the deeply disruptive ones, you know, with a proposition which is going to really change the insurance industry. And, and, and most of them in that category uh, are what we uh, at Instech London have started to call tech-enabled MGAs. Hmm. You know, and these people have the platforms to do, amongst other things, embedded insurance. You know, they take on the administrative capability. They will often be the, the product engineer that designs the product in the first place. The very first of these to, to reach unicorn status in, in the UK was Zego. You talked about Uber earlier. Once you can stick your insurance capability on the app of you know, an Uber driver and they can press on or off on the insurance and get an insurance price depending on how far they drove for how long and, and, and how, you, you, you have fundamentally changed the dial uh, in a way that right now, I'd say no insurers, but 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 very few insurers could actually you know get their heads around, and and I think that's what drives these valuations. I mean, you know, the sense that these people have uh, the tools to exploit the kind of opportunity that you're talking about when the incumbents don't, and and I, you know, at the same time, this is an opportunity. You know, right now the opportunity is being exploited much more by insurtech and new new businesses than by incumbents. And, and, and I think there's a danger associated with Go so easily giving up a large parts of the value chain. Effectively, you're giving the ownership of the customer, the data, the administration, the all to, to the point you made earlier, bar the provision of the regulatory capital, to someone else. I think that's a dangerous place to be. I don't know whether yeah. you agree. Well, I strongly agree. I mean, and this comes back to what you mentioned at the beginning about platform business models when you introduced me. I mean, platform business models are the most powerful in the digital world because they say that as a platform creator, I am trying to serve a market. I'm trying to, I'm trying to solve unmet needs for a market, but I as a business can't do all of that on my own. So Apple has apps which people use, but it said, we can't create all these apps ourselves. Let's harness the ingenuity of the rest of the world, people we'll never meet personally, to create solutions for our customers. And they created the app store, the marketplace. Amazon did the same. They, they used to retail products and take on the inventory risk. And then they said, but our customers want more than we can provide or take the risk for, so let's create a marketplace. And same with Google, with Google Play and so on. Um, so, and that's exactly the model with uh, Alibaba and the super apps from, from, from China. So that whole principle is something that's quite, quite difficult for many companies who are used to manufacturing something, distributing it, and collecting the money down the chain from the customers. The model that says we are going to uh, orchestrate the matching between people, what people want and people who've got solutions. And some of those solutions could be ours, by the way, but some of them not. That's quite a big shift. And particularly for the incumbents that have been used to a very linear way of, of delivering solutions in the past. So I think to your point, 
you're quite right. The the digital MGAs, they're much, they've got much lower cost base, they're much more dynamic, they've got much more technical smarts, they're they're able to offer new solutions that others couldn't. But even they, they will also need to uh, open up to third parties to complement their own skills. Um, and we're seeing, you know, when I speak to a lot of the leaders of those, and a lot of the people that you've you know you interviewed for the report and and we've spoken to uh, recently. They, they can see they're solving a short-term problem of, of digitizing the process and dramatically reducing the costs. But then they recognize looking ahead, they're going to also have to open up and be stronger aggregators as well of solutions. I think the industry needs to get its head around the super apps and the big platforms like Amazon and, and Google, Apple. You know, I think perceptually there seems a huge threat and, and one can't, uh, you know, be seen to be doing any business with them. And why would you give your, you know, smarts to, to people who are going to come and eat your lunch one day, you know, to type of approach. But I, I, for, for what it's worth, I think that's slightly overdone. And I look at the, the, the enormous opportunities there are for those companies. And I still think that eating up a lot of your capital to be the risk taker uh, and to step into a really compliant, regulated world when you don't need to, you can still <laughs> extract the best bits yeah. without having to move into that space is, is likely to deter them, at least in, you know, for the medium term. Uh, you, you, you agree? Absolutely. I mean, they're doing that in, you know, in banking and so on. They, then, they don't want to take on banking licenses, the, the big um, players. So they, they use bank, you know, embedded banking services or bank as a service, it's called. So, you know, Google Pay, which is a ve- becoming a super app, it's a very powerful app. It's going horizontal. It's offering more and more and more financial services, starting with payments and commerce and then banking. And, but it backs off the bank accounts to, to local banks because it doesn't want to have all that regulatory oversight at all. And it could, and, and it's the same with, with, with Amazon and the others. And insurance will be next. I think that's the big opportunity for those companies that can create an, something that's easy for those guys to plug into and that can orchestrate multiple suppliers. So now, you know, the problem if you're a, I don't know, you know, an individual company like an AXA, you tend to just want to sell your own products. But as we know from those examples, like, <laughs> and, and I think you've spoken to some of these guys as well, like the people who run Uber or run QuickBooks and so on, you know, they say that the traditional products that they were being offered by the, by the traditional companies were just very standard. They weren't appropriate for their end customers. And that's why these new intermediaries have come in who've then helped to translate, if you like, the needs of the, the platform's customers, the platform and the customer, to the supply base. And in fact, a lot of them have also had to create their own MGAs to sort of show the art of the possible as well. And then that, so, yeah, so I think it's, I, I, I think this, the, the, big plat, the big digital players are a, an opportunity, um, but they have a lot of market power and you'll have to be, you have to deal with them very carefully. But you've got this, I mean, it's not, it's a very big long tail of other digital platforms, um, particularly in Asia now. You know, it's got hundreds of millions of, of users on, on, on there. So I think it's a very interesting times. So, so given that you and I get so excited about this, what is it um, that holds the incumbent insurance companies back, do you think? I mean, um, 
you know, it's a big opportunity, but 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 I don't see there are a handful of absolutely people who are absolutely on it. I mean, uh, in, yep. in the report we, we talked to, you know, to Wacam, um, you know, Mapfree, Liberty Mutual, Swiss Re, the you know the big reinsurers, but 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 on the whole, I don't sense a big enthusiasm. Well, you know why? Yes, yes. The why is because uh, the leaders, it's not their world. They're not technologists. Mm-hmm. If you look at the board composition of the biggest insurance players, difficult to find many technologists on the board. Lots of insurance people and finance people are lawyers, but where's the person who spent 30 years at Microsoft on the board? I mean, I just do, I, I, challenge, I, you know, I challenge everybody who's listening here to do, do, do a quick search, take a couple of, tel- of big insurance companies, look, look up who's on the board. If you don't have that knowledge and, and experience, what we're talking about, something very super digital, being like Stripe, oh my God, it, all those, you know, it's, just, it's just very, it's very uncomfortable. So it takes either a very bold leader, tends to have to be the founder of the company, because most leaders are caretaker managers. They're in, they're, they've been hired in for a sh- typically a short period of time to sort of, you know, clean things up and get things efficient. And, uh, and they're being judged by metrics which are not very conducive to what we're talking about. We're talking about a 10-year horizon to make a shift, you know, completely change the business. So I think that's a sort of fundamental challenge. Now, having said that, you can show a path forward um, for, for, the, for these companies about what they, what they can do. And you can show them example, very successful examples who've, of companies who have made the transition. And I always use Ping An as my favorite example. That's the best example. The company decided we're going to be a digital business, changed everything, and, and is very, <laughs> now the biggest, most valuable insurance company in the world. Um, so I think coming back to your question, there is this fundamental issue at the top of the company, lack of understanding, natural caution, natural nervousness um, to, to do something that's, that's different. But there is a way out of this. And uh, we can explore that in, in, you know, in more detail. But it means actually saying we're going to become a digital company because the world is going digital and our current business model is not fit for purpose. So, you know, I, I think in my report, I showed the economic profit on average of the top 200 insurance companies. And apart from a few who are doing pretty well, on average, it's zero or negative economic profit, profit after cost of capital. The business model is not working, yet we have this enormous protection gap. So I, I think the world needs insurance. It needs more insurance, better, more cost effective, but the supply side isn't getting it to the world. And that's the, that's the big opportunity. So if you have a leader who has a passion for making the world more resilient or closing the protection gap, using digital technologies is a great way of doing so. The thing that amazed me most, or the thing that made me challenge or question why this has not been done, is 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 the is the thought that every party in the value chain benefits from embedded insurance done well. In other words, the customers like it. Yeah, they do. Yeah. You know, they get what they want when they want it. Distributors like it because it's another you know re- revenue stream. At, at an insurer level, um, you know, it's a big opportunity for for, for insurtech. They they should love it, but insurers. You know, should love it too because it's a fundamentally better distribution model and a much more cost-effective model. So, so you know, it's quite rare that you see these things where all parts of the value chain, you know, they benefit. And then I, you know, I look back sort of slightly more prosaically than you and think that if you're stuck on legacy tech, that's sort of if you're lucky, thirty years old, 
Mm. then you simply can't play this. And you are left with these two choices. You know, go partner with somebody who can provide you with the tech and risk giving up important parts of the value chain, you know, to somebody else, or go rebuild your tech. And mm. you know, I'm like a stuck record. I mean, regular listeners of this podcast and anything that Intertech London put out will we, we'll know that this is a, a 20-year mantra. But but at some point, it, you have to rebuild your, your tech. And I, I know everybody knows they've got to do it. It's just... It's always sort of pushed back. And when these opportunities of this size come along, it makes you question how much longer you can keep putting it back. Yeah. And then I do say to myself, you know, there's a big cultural challenge there because a lot of this is product engineering. Wacam did with this nicely, in, you know, in the report. They rebuilt their technology and, you know, well done them. But, but that was only half the journey. The other half of the journey was a cultural one, which is when people bring us things we don't understand, we don't know, which doesn't fit naturally within what we would normally do. We can't go as we used to. We don't understand that. It doesn't fit with our product set. It's how do we make this work, you know, and, and getting a culture internally where you you try, you take these things and you say, well, I know we haven't got a historical data set and I, you know, I know we've never done this before, but hey, you know, let's try. I, I think that that's the other part of it. I don't know whether you agree. Oh, I strongly agree. I think I think the, the, one of the challenges, of course, is trying to turn the super tanker around is quite difficult and takes time. and so. While you do need to opt, let's call it optimize the core business, you one of the one of the ways that Ping An has been so successful is it created a whole set of separate ventures away from the core, uh, separate equity structures that attracted entrepreneurs who'd done um, digital successful digital ventures in the past, and those acted as the speedboats to grab new market opportunities quickly. Because if you try and do anything that's beyond the current business model within the core, the immune system tends to, you know, kill it, suck the life out of it. So the notion that I talk about, in, and in my book, uh, Fight Back, this is, <laughs> this is one of the big themes, is of the ambidextrous organization. And we don't, we're not spending enough, we're not putting enough proper resources on the create the new that is separate from the core, completely separate, but connected, because you need to leverage the assets of the core to make, to, to, to be successful here. And the new activity needs to drive demand for the core. So I'm just <laughs> I'm doing quite a bit of work with companies to, to, to on this about how you can do that. That the new ventures that are tackling the white space digital opportunities in new ways with new business models, how they can in practice use the assets of the core, um, and, and crucially to get the support of the core, drive demand for the core business as well. So for example, Ping An's ventures, all digital ventures, separate from insurance, but were about engaging with end users, creating digital marketplaces for buying and selling cars, telemedicine, and so on. They they weren't insurance businesses, of course, but there's a gap in the market for them. And, and Ping An wanted to be part of people's everyday lives because insurance is not an exciting thing for, for consumers or businesses. So they created those, and they now drive 40% of new business for the core business because they've created a system whereby these are all interconnected. And that's the way of thinking about it. It, it, it is, it's a potentially creating your own channels to grow your core business while you're optimizing and uh, improving the fundamentals you need to get right. And then you reshape the core in so doing. So that's, that's the sort of way I, I try and speak to people about it, uh, about how to overcome this you know, the, the, the immune system and be able to grab opportunities quicker. 
And, and we're, we're into Tech London and you, we're going to c- collaborate on, on, on some workshops. Uh, I mean, for those who listen to this and go, um, I mean, some will listen to it and go, oh, Robbins and, and, and with his friend Simon have gone off on another mad, you know, uh, frolic of their own, uh, reimagining that he have no idea how difficult it is. But those who listen to it and go, uh, we really ought to do something about it. What, 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 what practical steps? I mean, uh, you know, your, your workshops sound like something that, that should be engaged with. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I'm delighted to be working with you on this, Robin. But, but the really practical steps are understanding at the top level. This, this is a CEO question. It's not an innovation department. It is the CEO or the divisional CEO saying, I want to grow my business and create a business model that is fit for the future, because at the moment it isn't. As I said, you know, uh, 80% of insurance companies make zero negative economic profit. That's the first thing. If we can, uh, those who are listening, bring us in to speak to your, um, we'll do a, um, an education engagement session with the board or the leadership team. They will get excited, I guarantee. And we can show them the, and we can talk through, if you like, practical options for how to move forward based on best practice from around the world. I think that's the best way of getting started. I've done this many times now. People, those people then get energized. It cuts through a lot of the, the, the mist that is making things difficult. And we can show some practical steps for moving forward. Well, you certainly energized me. Firstly, when I read your LinkedIn article in, in December and then and then in this discussion and in our in our dealings ever since. So thank you very much for joining me. The report, um, which is entitled To Embed or Not to Embed, is out on the 1st of July. And then you and I have several activities on the 1st of July uh, around Embedded. And, and we will be running a kind of campaign for a month or so around Embedded before we, we, we move on to the next uh, subject. Thank you, Simon. We'll see lots of each other in the next few weeks. Uh, and thank you for joining us and, and, and good luck with the workshops and everything else that you're doing. Many thanks, Robin. It's been a great pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks a lot. See you soon. That's it for today. I'm back with the microphone next week. Please do keep telling us what you think of the podcast and to make sure you don't miss anything we are doing or many of our members, then we suggest you sign up for our weekly Instec London newsletter or now we've released some specialist newsletters with regular updates on what's happening in parametric insurance and in flood. You may find those useful too. That's all that and everything else to www.instec.london. <laughs>